we are back with Goblet of Fire. Steven, did you survive? Bone of the father, unwillingly given, flesh of the servant, willingly sacrificed, blood of the enemy, forcibly taken, creating magic shall rise again. Were we falling? Did we die? And then now we have to be perfect life. Having just been subjected to watching Goblet of Fire, I kind of did die. So, hi. Hi, friend. I'm here. I've got this bag of M&Ms that got me through the second half of the movie. Are they regular M&Ms or fancy M&Ms? No, they're regular. Come on, please. I'm a man of the people. Um, I've got this decidedly not prebiotic plant fiber tonic drink. Instead, I've got the OG cola, that of Coke diet, mind you, because, you know, I'm healthy um, from down in Atlanta, Georgia. And I've got my brain, which feels like it was just crucioed for the past two and a half hours. So, Danny, where do you want to start? Well, let's start at the very beginning. Let's start at the very beginning. All right. um, So we... Fans, friends, enemies, I suppose enemies. We are, well, we, we, we are, we just did watch Goblet of Fire, the fourth installment of the Harry Potter movie franchise. This movie was directed by Mike Newell. It came out, when does it come out? Like 2004? That sounds right. 2005. Came out in 2005. Let's start at the top. Let's start with a shade of optimism. What were you anticipating going into this movie? How did you feel coming out of it? Let's start there. Going into it, what was I anticipating? Um, Also, I heard was your voice in my head going, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Coming out of it, I forgot how long it was. And not that like... I'm against them putting content into it, but it took forever to get to the first task. Like there's a lot of stuff happens and you're already halfway through the movie and they're not even on task one, but, but it just feels like this, the things we are given prior to that are like snippets of everything. Like you're not, you're not getting like, you're not getting as much as I want. And they're just like little snippets until you're finally into the tasks. I went into this movie consciously aware of a lot of our listeners feedback when it comes to me talking about the movies which is that I have nary a good thing to say about many of the movies particularly this one so I went into this movie into this viewing tonight really trying my hardest to identify some positive moments and highlights some things I could talk to that were that were good that I enjoyed and I think I did that um, I came out of this movie with a whole new appreciation for how bad Michael Gambon is as Dumbledore. And it's not just for all the typical reasons that people like to spout. Uh, we'll get into it later, but oh my good Lord, he is just, he's obviously a good actor, right? He, he's made it this far in his life. He's well-respected. You know, I, I would argue maybe revered even in British uh, film society. 
But boy, he did not turn in a good performance here. So it's, that's what it, I got. It's very, because I, I have nothing against his acting skills. It's more so the choices he made as Dumbledore that are the problems. He's very frantic. Like Dumbledore just always seems like frantic and even the way he moves, it's yeah. Just... We're we're not we're not getting into this whole thing now. We'll get into it somewhere later. I guess, but let's. First thing I noticed <laughs> right out of the gate, and I understand why they had to do this for the movie going public. Who's not a huge Harry Potter fan? Who maybe didn't read the book? Who hadn't thought about the series in a while? In the the Riddle Manor, Wormtail is groveling at the feet of of Lord Voldemort. And Wormtail says, Lord Voldemort. Like, he says, something, something, please, Lord Voldemort. If you know one thing about the Death Eaters, they don't say his name. It's my Lord. It's the Dark Lord. And so it's such a little thing that really doesn't matter. But immediately, I'm like, why? I I get why they had to do that. Like, the producers and the writers are like, okay, we need to remind people what's going on here. Because there's a chance they may not know. But, oh, geez. Bad start. Bad start. What, what, What were your thoughts on... Riddle Manor and kind of the open, the cold open, if you will. I was okay with the cold open. Um, it definitely sets the mood, like even in like the coloration and like the, it distinguishes where we're going from this movie forward versus where we came in the first three. Like there's a notable noticeable shift on what is happening. And like, yes, Prisoner of Azkaban was, a bit darker than the first two, but there's a more distinct shift with this one. The first thing that I really enjoyed was the between the dream that, well, it's reality, but the tea kettle going off and like the connection of how they transitioned from the riddle house to the burrow. There, there are a lot of transition scenes like that where they do, I believe in the biz, that's a jump cut. Having listened to enough podcasts now about TVs and, and movies that have been made, um, a lot of little transition scenes like that where they do similar implements. And some don't work as well. Like I have one later on um, after the first Defense Against the Dark Arts class when they're walking down those seemingly endless spiral stairs. Mm-hmm. And Moody pulls Neville back upstairs. They have that teardrop rain going down the the, the stained glass person. Yeah. And like, it just didn't make any sense. And like, I get they were transitioning to it's raining outside for the next scene. But anyway, that's all to say. But I think like I, with this one, it was because it was also auditory. It yeah. wasn't just like, here, let's make this smooth transition. It was like, he was hearing the sound. It fit into the riddle scene in a way and transitioned right over to it. And I agree. Ron being afraid to show Hermione his pajamas. Yeah. So, so I agree wholly on the tea kettle thing. It worked really well. Um, Ron pulling up the, the comforter. What? He's not I've even said, shirtless. I think I've said this every movie now, but what a, a another great, like kind of under the radar performance from Rupert Grint. Like he's not asked to do a ton throughout this series in terms of variety and kind of dynamism of acting. He, he's he's got a couple notes, but not more than a couple, and he nails them absolutely nails them. He does. Um, he's definitely like 
in Ron's body for this movie more so like you saw him getting there in prisoner and like he's there now and you see like the humor that is part of who Ron is. I'll tell you through this opening set of scenes here, everybody loves rightfully because it's a really memorable and somewhat hilarious scene at the end to bring up the my boy, that's my son. Amos Diggory entering this movie in the beginning when they're in the woods is doing the absolute most like every acting choice he makes is let's go over the top. Let's be loud. Let's elongate words. It is. It's insane in a movie where there's a lot of insane characters, right? Artie yeah. Crouch Jr. is just beyond right. Lucius in his own way is, is a lot in the scenes that he has Michael Gambon, you know, in a movie filled with characters doing the most, Amos Diggory is just by and away over the top. And I love it. No, I love it. And he's also like from the get go, like you see how proud he is of Cedric. Like that's set up right from the beginning. Of who? His son, Cedric. My boy! <laughs> the, the jumping out of the tree is a random choice, but. Yeah. So here's the thing. Hermione and Ginny clearly know who Cedric is because they exchange that little. And look, let's just be clear about this. Hermione is supposed to be 14 in this movie, I believe. Ginny is 12. So the look they exchange is a little too adult for my liking, given their actual ages. But the look they give is like, hey, I would help him emit sparks from the end of his wand. It's Ginny's now, well, depending on her birthday, she's going on 13 because she would have been 11 and okay, but still, but still, as a female, a 13 year old girl that I previously was, yeah, but like the look, a 13 in my look, in my recollection of what it was like to be that age, not to say I wasn't as a 13 year old girl, no, but. I think it's probably, quote unquote, with the heaviest air quotes, okay for Hermione to be giving that look. But Ginny's should be a lot more innocent and more like, a, oh, he's just a very handsome boy. Instead, she gives a look back that's like, yeah, you would, wouldn't you? And it's like, oh. Um, but that leads me to a point, which is, let's fast forward a little bit from them taking the port key and the fact that no one feels the need to instruct multiple muggle-born and or muggle-raised people on how to use a port key. But here's Didn't- the problem. Hermione gets it. Harry's just like, why are you all touching the boot? Well, no, because doesn't Hermione say when they're in the air, like, what do you mean let go? So, like, no, so like, yes. there needed to be some form of education from the two adults in the room. And, like, hey, guys, this is what's about to happen. Or the other wizard children. Well, the, like, the there's a bunch of them. Yeah, right. But, anywho, uh, Harry hits the ground with a terminal velocity that would have ended his life. That's all I'm saying. Like, he goes face first at a high speed straight into the ground. I hate the sinuses line. I think Mark Williams, who plays Arthur, does a phenomenal job throughout the series. I hated that line. That'll really clear out your sinuses, eh? Bad. But um, also, all of his children also hit the ground hard. Like they, like they know how to use the port key. They don't. They still know how to land, though. Yeah. It's, I mean, look. There's clearly not a lot of great parenting. Yeah. Happening in the Weasley household. And I'm not, no shots at Mrs. Weasley, who does phenomenal parenting, but in a very different way. Like, there's not a lot of educational parenting. It's a lot more of my way or the highway from the mom. And let's just see if we can make cool shit blow up and or fly from the dead. Let's see how this works and you'll figure it out on the way. 
So at the Quidditch World Cup, uh, like every other Harry Potter podcast has ever talked about, we wish we got more of the campground scenes, all that good stuff. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I don't understand why they complain about going super high up in the box. That's kind of the whole point. Um, I don't understand changing it that they were in the minister's box. Yeah, well, I, I guess it's because and it's they like don't a lot have more characters they would have had to invite in. Right. And I, I think so. I think that whole scene is engineered for a couple of reasons. A, they don't have Winky or Ludo. Right. So they're getting rid of that. They get rid of all the foreign ministry stuff. And then B, which is I think the, the more direct reason, they wanted to have the scene with Lucius where he uses his cane to assault a 14 year old boy. And you right? see him there prior to Death Eaters appearing. Right. They, they wanted that scene to happen. So in order to get there, they had anywho. But the thing I want to ask about, because, again, I was looking throughout this movie for things I liked. And there's lots of little things I liked. But as I was doing that, I also found little things I hadn't previously noticed before that I disliked. So, for example, and this maybe isn't a dislike, but I just don't understand. When the Quidditch teams are coming out and they're flying in, right? Here come the Bulgarians, right? Um, Ginny says, who's that? And the Weasley twins say, that sis is the best Quidditch player. Jenny, who we know becomes a professional Quidditch player, who is the like, and I'm not here to gender code or to stereotype, but the tomboy of tomboys in this series, she knows who Victor Crumb is. Well, it's not even that, because even if she doesn't know like that part, she has how many Quidditch playing brothers? We know Ron is obsessed as a friend of someone who has a very sports and enth- enthusiast little brother, I learned a lot about sports because that's all he talked about as a child. Right. But even I'm with you on that. That said, my younger sister, or even my mother for that matter, neither of whom really do sports, barely know the first thing about most Giants players. So, like, I, I can, I, I agree. I personally agree with you, but as a blanket rule, I'm not willing to go that far. But Ginny, within her own right, would probably know who Victor Crumb is. Yes. That's all I'm saying. Um, so, anyway, I bumped up against that. Um, the match doesn't happen. I mean, it happens, but we don't see it. I guess the other thing, so after, after Quidditch, there's this just bizarrely catastrophic riot that happens where everything is burned down. Like, every single well, thing there. Before we go into that... Because there's the fun little moment with Ron going on about his love for Victor Crumb. Yeah, Ron doing the ooh, the kind of the wing, the Weasley twins doing the wings. That that was great. Love that. To Paula, and I told her she needs to reenact it for a real. All about that. Um, but then, like Arthur comes in and he's like, "It's not the Irish." We're like, "Dude, camp's being attacked. Don't you think you want to be a little more like?" Get out of here and go. Well, not, not only that, but then he does this, like, it's one of my biggest pet peeves where in television and movies, actors have to hit their mark before they deliver the line. Where, like, he, like, pauses, like, walks over to Ginny semi-awkwardly, kind of, like, grabs her by the shoulder, and then's like, you have to go. Like, I feel, uh, look, I am not, uh, neither a parent nor someone who has been in the middle of a traumatic pseudo-terrorist attack before. But I can't imagine I would be as calm and like patient and almost like intentional as 
Arthur Weasley was there. as the one guardian of all these children that are with you. Yeah, wild, wild that he's the only parent there. Um, like absolutely insane. But yes, I, then it's completely burned down, and Harry was just laying in the middle of the fire. Why isn't Mrs. Weasley there? None of her kids are at home. She, well, Percy, I guess, right? But yeah, they don't care about Percy. I think in the books, they all got tickets and she's like, I'm going to Diagon Alley to get your stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. She, she's um, probably like, please take all the children. I'm staying here. So this this cataclysmic, destructive, like eight person Death Eater troop goes through and just burns everything down. Astounding to me that thousands of wizards, no one was able to be like, hey, I'm going to try, you know, like. It's an interesting philosophical conversation about fight or flight amongst larger society. But like one would think, you know, in a field of thousands of wizards, many of whom are associated with the government, someone many of would be which like have magic wands. Well, they right, but still, even if you don't, many people would just be like, I'm out of here. But like there has to be enough people that are like, hey, I'll put up a fight. Okay, sure. Anywho, I don't understand why the whole thing is burned down. But my question for you. What the fuck type of accent is Barty Crouch using? Either, either of them, primarily senior, but really either. Because Junior does like, and it's like weirdly French. And then you hear the father speak. Which one of you did it? Which one of you conjured it? And it's like also weirdly French, but Barty Crouch is a British minister. So there's really no ostensible reason for him to have this bizarrely, yeah, he, like his, guttural French accent. Seniors was very diff- interesting. Juniors, I I heard a lot of David Tennant's. Okay, I can, I yeah, but okay. I just don't, I don't understand Barty Crouch Senior particularly. It's yeah, I just went with that. It was David Tennant and his. They didn't have them match accents. He just went with his Scottish normal voice. So we've already hit a fair amount here in the past couple of minutes on reasons why Arthur Weasley is a poor parent and or not a good adult. Um, I would like to throw up for nomination the line, a man, Harry, who <laughs> is Harry supposed to know every single person's face in the wizarding world? Like, and and he like, probably, I don't know. I didn't and if he this. knew, he would be like, hey, Barty Crouch Jr. just ran off down that way. I saw him casting the spell. Like, just insane. Like, who? Well, I, I, I bizarre. I mean, look, he's not an or he works in the office of, you know, misuse of whatever, whatever, but didn't understand that. Next thing I've got is the Hogwarts Express. Is that where you're at? Yes. So I love, again, another great Rupert Grint line, just the droobles. Love that whole exchange. It also seeds really well. And they do this a couple different times you throughout. you Harry offer to pay? You do, but... So what you see multiple, there's multiple points in like the first hour, 45 minutes, the first 45 minutes of the movie where they're seeding very well. Like it's not super explicit that there's a growing inferiority complex dividing yes. Harry and Ron. I really love that. Yes. I mean, I don't love, I don't love the socioeconomics of it. I love the way they did that. In that the they're showing that there's already some unspoken tension from Ron. Yeah, and they're not just, and it's not like the movie is blatantly going, ha ha, look at him, he's poor and he's not famous. They're doing it in ways that are just really casual. Well, and they're also like normal ways, like Yeah, it's everyday stuff. If you and I were out somewhere and one of us didn't have the money, we'd be like, here, let me help you. I wouldn't. I would look at you and go, ha ha, you're poor. That's such a lie. 
It's really not. Uh, Cho Chang has entered the conversation. Make all the Slytherin boys say, dang, Cho Chang, boom, slang. Um, love that. I love that scene. I mean, A, uh, Katie Lung's her name, correct? Yes. I don't know how to pronounce the last name, but yes. Um, her intonation and inflection point she uses in her sentence sentences are just incredible. Like, she just finds the right way to put lilts on words and to accentuate sentences, like thinking of the train scene, thinking of the hourly scene. And she's like, and well, I told him I'd go, you know, like it just, she, she finds the perfect way to convey emotion within her, her dialogue. I love that. The other thing I love about that scene though, is the gaggle of girls around her, because as someone who to this day still struggles to approach women, he finds appealing there's always a gaggle of girls. And they like, are just always there. It's so and much later in the movie, but like the, the yeah, why are, do they always travel in packs? But I, honestly, again, to your point about kind of the Ron moments of, of self-consciousness kind of being very real of everyday life, the pretty girl always having other girls around her is something that I relate to so much. So if you're a pretty girl out there, and you're looking for a man. Here's a suggestion from a very single man who's nothing about women. Get the hell away from the group of girls. Just You know, when you're not in a group, the things that happen is Myrtle gets murdered in a bathroom. Katie gets cursed. Hermione <laughs> gets petrified. All right. So avoid large snakes and avoid necklaces. But beyond that, I'm telling you, the Muggle and Khaki's approved advice right here is just get the hell out of the group. Do your own thing, particularly if you live in or around central Connecticut. I'm not telling you exactly where because I don't need people showing up on my doorstep. That's a whole nother barrel of monkeys that we all need to get into here. But, you know, get, get rid of the group is all I'm saying. I appreciate that when Harry and Joe have their little moments throughout this movie. They're all very real. Like minus the magic school. Like we've all had those little moments with someone. Like it's very true to life. 16 minutes, 32 seconds. Do you know what happens at 16 minutes and 32 seconds into this movie? You go buy M&Ms? No. Um, well, <laughs> no. Um, one Michael Gambon uh, appears on screen and the real fun for Muggle and Khakis begins. Here's the thing that I noticed throughout this movie that beyond the aggressive line reading, which everyone points out and rightfully so, because it's really bad throughout the movie beyond the aggressive line readings. One of the things that just demonstrates to me that his interpretation of Dumbledore so far afield is the aggression and speed with which he turns his body and uses his limbs. Like when he makes those kind of like sweeping arm movements or when he turns his body to face the goblet, really anytime he's using his body physically to, to, to move right around the set, it's very fast and very aggressive and very like hard. Frantic. And yeah, fr- frenetic, frantic, right? And we've said it, I've said it so, that's just not who Dumbledore is, right? Like Dumbledore is someone I feel like Dumbledore is more graceful. Like. And, and like 
it's almost like you're shocked by how gentle he moves, but the power that comes out. Yes, exactly. Right? Like when he pulls. He doesn't have to exert power to show that he has strength behind him. Yeah, I just, it's so bad. It is, it's disgraceful. It's, it's, and, and look, I think at this point in this podcast run, I've already kind of screwed myself out of any jobs with Warner Media. So, like, might as well dig in. This is where, yeah, Michael Gambon was really, really damn bad. But then, like, Mike Newell's the director. You've got all these ADs and line producers. You've got, I would assume, Steve Cloves, the writer, is somewhere around set. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But you you have all these other people who are in charge of caretaking the movie through the process who at any point should have been like, hey, that was, the, okay, good take, but let's try it this way. You know, I'm not an actor. I'm not a director. I know that there's a very fine line of a relationship between actors and the production team trying to coach them and instruct them on how they want the scene done. But like, this isn't even degrees of difference. This is like a whole different thing, like a whole different spectrum altogether of how different it is. And so I just, I mean, were they asleep at the wheel? Like what the hell was going on? It's really bad. Speaking of actors, choices of movement. Potter Primos put out an amazing reel today and I've watched it multiple times because it makes me laugh and it just so happened we watched this movie today but when Filch is coming down through the Great Hall his little run I love that I don't understand I don't why, understand it but it's amusing why that choice was made but I love it absolutely love it right and like that's an example of an actor, uh, someone behind the scenes making a, a conscious choice there, but one that feels like it fits within the realm of who the character is, both from movies past and the books. And like, I'm fine with that. I'm not saying you have to, like, again, we've talked about this before, like Severus Snape, Alan Rickman is not Severus Snape from the books at all, at all, at all, but it still feels like it fits exactly within. The character. Right. So like, I'm, you know, I'm not sitting here saying you have to, you know, faithfully execute every single line from the books and every single emotion, you know, appropriately on screen. But Um, as we're talking about the entrance and entrances here of the students, the gratuitous booty shot of the Beaubaton women. I noticed that. Like, it's something that like, you, you know, there's a lot of things that we talk about in pop culture that have evolved into us realizing they're bad over time. I still remember maybe not watching it the first time back in 05, but like I remember watching it like in high school, like 2008, 2009, 2010, kind of a couple years after it was out and it being bad to me back then, right? Like it's just blatantly bad. Like it's just, they're like, yeah, bad, very bad. Here's my question. Here's my question for you about the schools arriving. Mobaton does their little, sashay, sashay, sashay. You know, Durmstrang does their who. And the one guy does that little jump where he doesn't do any stunt. He kind of just jumps. I've there was a TikTok that pointed that out that I saw months ago. If you're watching kind of that low, kind of close to the floor shot, right by the headmaster and the staff table, and that one Durmstrang runs and does like this little flip, kind of very close to the ground on the right side of the screen. On the left, another Durmstrang kind of just jumps and doesn't do any sort of thing. Just kind of just does like a little jump. Very bizarre. Anyhow, my question for you. If Hogwarts had an entry, what would it be? 
We're led to believe from Universal Orlando that it would be the Frog Choir because that's like the thing Hogwarts has there when Boba Tan. But I'm not. I'm not here for. If that's your answer, that's fine. But I don't need that to be the truth solely because Universal does it. In your opinion, what is Hogwarts's entry entertainment? That's a really good question. In my head, just based on the characters we know, they just never get their shit together to actually get it. I'm not sure. I thought about this a lot. I thought about how each of the presentations is supposedly representative of that school's ethnic and geographic culture, right? Yes. And for the French, they have this kind of very sweet, airy, sexist, mind you, but, you know, like pretty women kind of walking and flaunting kind of their fashion and their beauty. Durmstrang, cold, hard culture, fire sticks, men in furs, kind of just... Viking. Right, very reminiscent of like Viking, very reminiscent of like if you see old videos of like Lenin era Russians dancing or even like pre-World War II, World War II Germans dancing, like it's it's something that has emotion but isn't like buoyant the way you see like Irish kind of jigs or things like that, right? It's more like heavy. Right. And like earthy. So having said all that, I was thinking, well, you know, Hogwarts takes place in the UK. Um, What is like the prevailing thing, right, that kind of comes out in wizarding culture in the UK? And so for me, it has to be like them in their formal outfits. And I don't mean those weird black robes with the hats that they wore in years one and two. But like, you know, the gray sweater the the slacks for women maybe the knit skirt full uniform right full uniform yeah full uniform kind of maybe demonstrating as they walk different things like maybe someone has like the gobstones because there's the gobstones club right maybe so like like different aspects of Hogwarts student culture or maybe and then like- going through the middle through the middle of it all you have pe- like the house one person from each house flying their Quidditch broom. Because that's like football in the UK, football culture reigns supreme, mm-hmm. Hogwarts, Quidditch reigns supreme. So like, I think it's the student life kind of that, like, I'm not seeing people doing potions and shit like that. I would like to challenge your choice of like student life minus the sports of gobstones and stuff for historical importance of the school, like artifacts and moments that they would show off. Sure. Right. But like, it, that, that's what I came to was like, not, not a dance or not, not like a flaunting of superficial beauty or appearance. Right. It'd much more proper, of like a, yeah, much more of a proper. Like sort of Gryffindor comes out on display. Yeah. Like it, it feel it, to me, it feels like a cross between like Gryffindor and Ravenclaw traits. Yeah. Right, like the like the more fun side of Gryffindor with a lot of the intellectual superiority of Raven. Anywho, that's what I came. That's what I came down to. So, um, look at me asking thought provoking questions on this podcast. And it'd probably be like the head boy and head girl, and then the prefix in yeah. the march. Um, I really love Hagrid stabbing Flitwick. That was a great <laughs> line, um, or a great moment. Like it's Robbie Coltrane, who doesn't have a ton to do in this movie, really nails each of the scenes where he is featured, right? So stabbing Flitwick. He really the goblet, nails the infatuation. 
Yeah, right? Like when the goblet thing happens later and he's like, no, no. When Harry's name comes up, that was great. Like him in the forest with Harry. All of his scenes. Asking just, her to dance at the old Right, ball. grabbing her ass. Like all of it, just absolutely great. Here's, again, I was trying to think more philosophically about this movie than just straight up. I dislike, right? Mm-hmm. So when Moody enters, you know, shortly thereafter, shortly after Hagrid has stabbed Phileas Flitwick, Mad-Eye Moody suffers in the movie from not having had the referential introduction earlier as he does in the book. So for people who haven't read the books or don't remember in the books, you get talk of Mad-Eye Moody because Arthur needs to go help at the Moody residence because he reported some rustling around the dustbins and there's a disturbance at Moody's house and the characters talk about yeah, you know, Moody's kind of crazy, but that's always been his thing. And like, he's trusted and he was an or So like, you get talk that kind of tells you what to think about him. So then when he shows up in the great hall, you're not just like, wow, this man is clearly insane and clearly the bad guy. But instead you're like, oh, he's insane, but we've been told that's fine. Yeah. Right. So he, he his character, I think throughout the movie, which is a very good portrayal. I am not criticizing the portrayal whatsoever. But from a writing and conceptual standpoint, I think really suffers because there was no soft introduction to a very insane character. Yeah. Um, One of my other issues that I noticed this time through is we didn't talk about this, but we've talked about it on many an episode is the tongue flick thing. The one I want to address is the first thing Seamus says is, what's he drinking? I don't know, but it's not polyjuice. Yeah. Like, so if Seamus is noticing like the flask and all, and you see it throughout the whole thing. And I guess it's a known thing in the books that he carries and they, but they address that in that whole intro is that he carries his own. He doesn't trust anything, but they focus on it so much. You're like, something's up because he's constantly drinking. And then you'll all see, and he makes this weird little like, transforming moment after drinking like you would expect he was drunk eternal glory another bad camping moment and that's how i'm choosing to address it here so defense against the dark arts class on the defense against the dark arts class arthur doesn't teach anything and then the response from Juan is my dad told me about one i'm sorry you just said arthur doesn't teach yes no arthur Arthur? weasley Oh, I thought you were okay. I'm no. with you. I'm with we you. We went through this conversation of like he doesn't teach his kids things. What's a port key? Then they get to to the curses, and Ron's like, "My dad taught me one." Not taught. Well, like, I could, I, yeah, I, I could see actually. I'll defend my boy Arthur here in that I could see him just being like, "Boys, let me tell you about the weird shit that I see every day." Right? And like you think an exploding toilet is bad back in the day. People used to, so I'm with you that it doesn't make sense for Arthur to have really, I doubt there was any sort of intellectual lesson tied yeah. to the Imperious Curse story, but I, I can see them sitting around the shed or something, right? Or coming back from their field where they play Quidditch, right? And just being like, dad, tell us another story. And that kind of being the thing. Um, but again, because you don't get an intro to Moody, right? You kind of just shows up batshit having walked across the rocks and ravines of the Scottish Highlands to walk into the castle, even though there's a normal pathway one can enter the the castle with. 
all of a sudden he's just playing with spiders and killing spiders left and right in his first class. And there's no talk in the movie. I, I hate being the in the books guy, right? But if you're not going to introduce Moody referentially kind of in the movie the way they did in the book. So all of a sudden all you get is this kind of batshit guy with one eye and a one leg, right? When he does all this stuff where he's enlarging a spider and killing a spider and do he using, you know, he committing capital crimes, right? In, the, in front of 14 year olds. There has to be a conversation that Hermione has as she does in the books where it's like, do we think Dumbledore approved this? Dumbledore must've approved it. Yeah. And they, you don't get that in the movie. So again, all you get is this unhinged guy who is doing all this, not even borderline. We're way past the border or the line. Right. Yeah. And, and so I just, because it would have yeah. been easily to do like when he entered was it'd be, it'd feel like very appropriate for like Fred and George to be like, Oh, Hey, we heard about him. And like easily cover that background we missed. Yeah. And then they go into that first class. Poor Neville is tortured. Hermione has to make him stop. She's almost in tears. Yeah. So we already talked about the stained glass window transition, mm-hmm. which again, not, not just the specific transition, but as you as we talked about earlier, I do think there was, and I think this existed in, in Azkaban too, although in a very different stylistic way, just because Alfonso Cuarón's a very different style of director there was a big emphasis throughout this movie on kind of the finesse of cinematography mm-hmm. in a way that definitely didn't exist in one or two and existed yeah. very differently differently in three yes um so then we get to the goblet um scene as we've already established gambin's awful um robbie coltrane's very good the one thing i would point out from this scene is when the goblet is, you know, sparking again and Harry's name's about to come out. The acting choice by Gambin, where he does this weird crouching, kind of like shying away from it while doing Jack Sparrow hands at the goblet. I just, I don't understand. I don't, I I just don't understand. Then the other one that bothered me is when he goes back to the room and like Harry is like physically oh, well, yeah. moving back, oh, well, well, be like, I'm about to be attacked by Dumbledore. Well, sure. That, that's the big one. That's the did you put your name in the goblet of fire when he's kind of like mutter shouting, like muttering, shouting, yeah. coming down the stairs, like all the rules, all the rules. Did you put it? And he just physically assaults a student. I love Madame Maxime just straight up swatting at like a hanging lantern. I thought that was great. I thought that was just funny and good. Another confusing moment is Gambin is shouting at Harry, right? Alistair and Karkarov have their little standoff. And then Dumbledore, again, kind of like shout growls. We don't have time for that, Alistair. But then super calmly, like that, says to Crouch, I leave it up to you, Barty. It's like, well, whoa. Express some opinions. Well, I'm fine if you want to say I'll leave it to you, but like you went from shouting and physically assaulting a student to very calmly asking a peer for for their decision within like five seconds and like three physical feet of space. I don't understand that. I don't. I want to give a shout out to Maggie Smith. I was about to say that again, did a phenomenal job with limited work in this movie. 
Um, I love the scenes, the scene uh, after this where they're in Dumbledore's office and they're discussing what to do. And she is just great. She's absolutely great. Her physical choices, her voice, her her lines, all of it's perfect. Yeah. No, I really, I enjoyed that scene with her. And even like the opposition between her and Snape of differing opinions. I also enjoyed her in the ferret scene. But I also enjoyed the ferret scene too. So let's head into the section and you can choose if you have commentary on either one of them searching for dates and going into the Yule Ball. Let's shout out Maggie Smith again for the dance scene with Rupert Grant because that was just great. Yeah, that whole that whole scene is what I will call the larger Yule Ball series of scenes, right? So them finding dates, them learning how to dance, and then the Yule Ball itself, fantastic. I probably think of you when I see the Weasley twins do their little dance because that's oh, the dance yeah. that you do in the Wizarding World. Yeah, that... That whole set of scenes is just perfect, right? Because yes. it nails teenage angst. It nails teenage lust. It nails old enough to be an adult and be aware, but young enough to where you're still immature and annoying kind of relations between you and a teacher. Like it's, it's perfect. And even you and siblings. I don't know if it was like the purposeful choice, but Hermione doing almost like a very Molly Weasley impression when she sends them off to bed i get it like i now that you say it, i see it. i didn't interpret it like that i read it i read into it more as especially book hermione definitely is much more of a domineering presence on their lives right yes. in the books she's dictating like when they do their homework she tells you know like she's a lot more of a mom right yes. so i totally get that you went to molly which makes a lot of sense i just didn't go there but yeah i, I get that um, well, because Hermione doesn't like you, like, yes, yeah, she tells them to do things, but she doesn't usually like yell at them. Yeah. Well, in the book, she kind of sort of does. Yeah. Not with as much emotion as she does yeah, in this it scene. Just, it but... felt very like Molly's response, like off to bed. Like, I'm done with you. Yeah. I'll give a shout out here as long as we're talking about the Yule Ball to our good friends, Haley and Michael, um, for their incredible portrayal of the Weird Sisters um, in one of their many, many. And Greg with the cosplays. added in there. Um, yeah, I, I mean everybody who's crew. yeah everybody who's involved in really any cosplay is impressive to me. <laughs> but um, yeah, the Weird Sisters group um, that was great. Let's Miss y'all. Head to task one. Dragons. I liked it. I don't have any notes. I liked it. No notes. No dragon. Well, what do you think? I think it worked. Um, it's where we really see the fighting and making up of Ron and Harry. Can I ask a question? Sure. Do boys fight like that as teenagers? Despite my teenage years being a lot shorter of a time period ago than yours, um, I have to think back on this. How do you mean? Like, do boys get in these, like, how do you, how do you mean? Like, where they, like, stop, t- like, I know it's, I don't want to, like, stereotype, but the girls definitely go through those moments where, like, I'm just not talking to you right now and just ignore each other. Like, is that something guys do also, or? Yeah, I, I suppose so. I think it largely depends, quite honestly, on 
kind of the emotional intelligence, right? Because, and again, not to overly stereotype, but, you know, I, I had friends, even friends to this day who are very um, hesitant to show emotion, right? So you're just going to get a lot of, hey, dudes from them, right? Even if they're, if they're pissed, if they're happy, like there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of range, right? And then you got someone more like me, right? Who is very open with their emotions and is going to let you know how they feel, good, bad, or otherwise. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess the shortest answer to your question is yes, but I think it definitely depends uh, based on the human, the emotional range of the people in question. Right? Like I, I thought the most fitting scene that depicted teenage boy relationships was when they make up in the common room. That whole dialogue they have there, I thought was like spot on to like my teenage experience where there's like enough emotional kind of peaks behind the curtain to where like, there's some genuine honesty there, but then there's a lot of humor, some ignorance and stupidity. Like it all, it all kind of fit. Okay. I was just curious. And then we move on to the golden egg and heading into task two. Yeah. Moaning Myrtle, a ghost (laughs) sexually harasses a 14 year old boy mm-hmm. um so that happened we see uh, neville knows things neville knows things and he almost kills harry potter i just like this yeah. i killed harry potter i i think we talked about this on an episode before in when they're sitting there on the dock for the second task yeah. the hoodie that like i think was it Neville or Seamus? One of them was wearing. It has like the Hogwarts crest on it. Any, it doesn't matter who. One of them's wearing a Hogwarts hoodie, like it has a crest. Looks like something you'd buy today at Harry Potter in New York at the at the parks, you know, studio tour. Yeah. Are we to assume then that there's like a student store where they can pick up this type of merch? Like, because that's not standard issue, right? Like they get their robes or whatever and even though they phase them out thankfully they get that hat i would assume there would be because they're at a boarding school things are going to rip and be damaged and need replaced but but what i'm saying is that's the type of stuff i really want to see we talk all the time on this podcast about like potential new types of content and plot lines it's not really a plot line so much as I just want to see the everyday, the everyday. You want to hang out with the person who runs the student store. Well, no, I just like, like things like that though. Right. Yeah. I want to see a lot more just like super casual grade hall stuff. I just want to see like the ins and outs of like hanging out in the library, going to the student store that supposedly exists. Like, like in the books, they talk a lot about when they have free days or free periods, they hang out by the lake or they hang out on the, like, yeah. Like that regularness of life. Yeah. Right, obviously, because it's a movie and it's a movie that has a time limit, so much of the plot and so much of what we see is driven around the important events that happen that drive Harry's story forward. Yeah, I just want to see the, the the world. Yeah, and that's something that's very specific in this movie is that, and yes, I know it's called Harry Potter, but it's very Harry centric focused. Like even with the other leads in there, you don't get a lot of them. Everything is very focused on. Harry, what he's doing, what he's going through with these side moments with other people, even with just Hermione, like it's, they're not as strong in the relationships as they have been in previous movies. I feel like this movie, like it was so 
so many things are happening leading up to the task. And then the task just like hit and go. Like, I feel like we finished the second task and all of a sudden we were already at the third task and you're hearing the marching band going and trying to think if there's anything in between there really of what happened between second and third, because there was no clue to figure out. So I think it just kind of moved into the third task. Third task. So here's my question. I thought about this tonight for the first time, really. Let's assume that, that Cornelius Fudge, you're Cornelius Fudge, right? You're Corn Fudge. And you believe that this whole Voldemort back thing is a hoax. It's fake news. What's your explanation for what happened to Cedric? Because the maze, as we saw, has nothing that would cause murder. So the only explanation I can give you then, if I'm Cornelius Fudge, is that Harry murdered Cedric to win the Triwizard Tournament. Because there's no other explanation. There isn't. So how come then... This was another... It had to be one of the people. But so, but so it had to be one of the people. Exactly. So whether it's Harry or one of the others, it had to be one of the people. So therefore, why isn't Corn Fudge arresting and trying yeah. any of these three other kids for murder? Yeah. If Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand that. I, of course, love, 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 love. Didn't understand love, that. Didn't um, understand there were big... two tasks that the audience couldn't see, so they just stared at Green Hedges. Yeah, I love Amos Diggory's performance here. And, and, and I'd love, I don't say necessarily because I think it was the best acting in the world, but it's iconic, right? That's my son, my boy, right? And of course, now in the world of TikTok, all y'all out there who are TikTokers will understand this when the, the band starts going, bum, ba bum, bum, bum. I'm like, gobble me, swallow me, drip. And, and, and all of the different remixes that are on TikTok kind of click in. So love that. Um, we've skipped entirely over the graveyard scene. That's what I was about to say. Like we went from the start of the maze to the end of the maze. Well, the middle of the maze, I suppose. Well, I didn't need that, but like the graveyard yeah. scenes in there, which is pretty much the like kickoff of he actually is back, even if the government doesn't believe so. Yeah. So the couple of things I'll say here, and then I'll let you. I'll, I'll clear the clear the lane for you. Ray finds probably one of the best villains in modern cinematic history. He definitely, in a way, not dissimilar to Tony Soprano, to, to James Gandolfini's portrayal of Tony Soprano, takes a movie, and in Tony's case, Jim's case, like takes a couple seasons to find the voice and find the character perfectly. Mm-hmm. Like if you listen to Voldemort talk in Goblet versus the way Voldemort talks in Deathly Hallows, it's almost two completely different voices. Um, yes, but, but he also didn't have the space to move in that body quite yet. No, I'm fine. I'm I'm fine with it. I'm just, like, he. My point is, although he doesn't show up in Goblet with the like final ultimate portrayal of Voldemort, it's still remarkable. Um, he absolutely. His Michael physicality. Gambin. Yeah, I was gonna say Michael Gambin misses on the physicality. Uh, Ray finds because even like the weird thing he did with like his bald head and being like, "Oh, scene. I'm a human." Yeah, yeah. I mean, and even how like he moves his hands, like accentuating his fingers and stuff. He he is someone who chews the scenery in a way that very few in this series, much less the rest of kind of cinematic universe, can compete with. It's absolutely remarkable. 
Uh, yeah, he he's phenomenal. One one little thing I want to point out, um, not about him, but about the Death Eaters. Um, first off, we don't need to get into this, but um, listeners, I'm very confused by the number of Death Eaters. If you look at the number of Death Eaters at the Quidditch World Cup who are rioting, if you look at the Death Eaters who are at the graveyard, like the number of them, and then you look at like the Death Eaters who end up at the final battle of Hogwarts in seven part two. I just don't understand. If you have a theory that goes beyond just movie magic, hit us up, creatingmagicpodcast at gmail.com. That's but special math. When Harry and Voldemort start dueling, when, when Voldemort's like, you have to bow, there's one Death Eater. When Voldemort's forcing Harry to bow, there's one who's like gleefully clapping with like a smile on their face, and no one else is. No <laughs> one else is like smiling or making any moves. And this, go back and watch the scene. There's one Death Eater on like the left end of the gaggle of Death Eaters who like, and it's not like Bellatrix kind of like jumping up and down, but it just has like a smile on their face and is clapping. <laughs> and like, I, I don't know what the hell that's about, but I loved it. Them duel, the wands meet and spew out the prior deaths. How'd you feel about those little bits of dialogue? Like with Harry and his parents. Yeah. I liked, I think I liked them. I liked that it kind of showed a connection and a, that Harry isn't always alone, even when he feels it type of. But um, I think they worked for what they were trying to do. Like, I don't think they could have used anything more. Yeah. Because it wouldn't have felt true. You know, it's funny throughout the series book and movie, despite, even though we know this erroneously in the movies, having his mother's eyes, Harry's always compared to his father because mm-hmm. troublemaker, Quidditch, physical appearance, all that stuff. Right. But particularly in the books, it's his mom who Harry has the real connection with in all of the various ways that Harry engages directly and or indirectly with the memory and or voices of his parents. And so when I read Goblet of Fire and I read this chapter, every single time I read it, first time I read it to if I were to pick it up tonight, I cry when Harry and his mom are talking. And I don't know necessarily what more they could have done over the course of the first three and a half movies to kind of imbue more emotion in that relationship. But I didn't get any form of emotion other than like the the intensity of, oh, shit, I'm about to possibly die. Yeah. Right? I didn't get any of that, like, super, like, tender love that is is explicit in every single other interaction they have, particularly in the books. And so that one left me lacking a little bit. Like, I'm fine with Cedric. I'm fine with with James. But him talking to, to his mom, it was missing something for me. Well, even if you go with that the conversation he then has with Dumbledore of the, you saw your parents. Yeah. Um, Could have been used as a way to show some of that, but it really, it was more matter of fact. We're like, this is what happened. This is why. I don't wholly understand the super comedic, like, no, that Voldemort and all the Death Eaters do when Harry Porky's away. Like, if you watch that scene over, Voldemort does that, like, kind of like crouched, like dashed to where the port key was when he comes through the smoke. Then Voldemort like turns over, I believe his left shoulder to look up towards the sky. All of the Death Eaters also turn their heads and look. 
as if they're looking for something. Then Voldemort puts his fist in the air and goes, no. And I just, it's, it's, uh, it's such like a Scooby-Doo or bat, like old timey Batman kind of villainous defeat reaction. It was just the funniest thing. Um, But we get back to Hogwarts and my boy, you know, um, we already talked about that. Anything else you want to layer in there? No, I think that's really it. Cause then we just head into the great hall. So the only thing I'll say here, the only thing I'll say, and I've said it before, this happens in the books too, as I recall, maybe I'm forgetting, but so it's not just a movie fault, but I, to this day, don't understand that I'll show you mine. If you show me yours line. Mm-hmm. And I like, I don't think well, it's in the books. Okay. Well, whatever. Regardless. I think in the books, it's more like, show me your arm, not like weird, creepy. I'll show you mine. If yeah. And then like Dumbledore obliges, which is the weirdest part. Like you got the dude prisoner. If you want to see his freaking arm, you just, you see his freaking arm. Yeah. Uh, at that point, when you have a child in the room who has been, for lack of a better word, abused by this man for the past year, really, but intensely for the past, like, two, three hours. At that point, you get the kid as far away from the guy as possible. Yeah. You don't keep the kid in the room, then force him to engage more with the... It didn't make any sense. Didn't didn't make any sense. Um I liked, I kind of liked every single time throughout this movie and others where they show Snape engaging with the bad character, right? Like when Snape has the wand at his throat or whatever, you know, like, and he does it with Karkarov earlier, they have like a face. Like, I like all of those scenes, um, not for any particular reason other than they're obviously going to reinforce the Snape's on the good side of things here kind of trope. Just building. Yeah. And that's really all I got. Like, the end of this movie sets up the rest. Like, people don't believe that he's back and that really sets up what's going to happen in the next movie. So, before we get to our favorite character, like, who won the movie most surprising scene or whatever. Sorry, no, the three are who won the movie best scene, most surprising thing. Before we get to that, I've been thinking a lot, and we've talked about this in bits and pieces before, so this isn't necessarily new, but I've I've been thinking a lot about why I dislike this movie so much beyond solely Michael Gambon is really bad. And they reveal the plot device at the beginning of the movie. And for me, it comes down to, I think, how much I love this book. This book... Goblet of Fire, I think, goes down in literature history as one of the most brilliantly conceived and composed pieces of literature ever written. The way that the author manipulates... So so you go into this series knowing that it's this eternal face-off between protagonist and foe, Harry and Voldemort. And one would assume that the series is going to end, it's going to culminate, right, with Harry facing off against Voldemort, and that's it. When book four rolls around, and the book culminates with Harry and Voldemort facing off, the entire clock of the series is reset. 
because you're no longer trudging towards what you thought was an eventual conclusion. Regardless of how it was going to conclude, good or bad for Harry, that's where you thought it was heading. Instead, the author drops it in, in the fourth book in the middle of the series. And it's like, hey, I'm in control of the timing here, and I'm, I'm taking all of your preconceived notions about what to expect, and we're throwing it out the window. Throughout the book, moving beyond solely that, you genuinely don't know who the bad guy is. Right, Karkarov could very well be it. Barty Crouch is painted in a somewhat weird light in terms of his ambition and his false targets on a lot of people of possibilities. Like, there's yes, but the answers are all there if you really read with a ton of forensic intentionality. And like, point is, the book is just phenomenal. Is I, I I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about it. It is one of the better things I've ever read. And so for this movie to come out, and we've talked before about how obviously you have to remove some things from a book into a movie because of time constraints. You have to remove some things because of um you know perspective, right? You can't have a movie where you are able to, you know, share someone's inner thought because it's a movie and that's not how movies work. I understand that. But it just feels like, I mean, maybe the the ultimate, the the most emblematic sin is using Lord Voldemort's name in the opening scene coming from a Death Eater. That explains it. They have to market this movie and they have to produce this movie towards a mass audience who maybe hasn't read the book or and or maybe doesn't remember the previous movies. So they have to introduce the core premise once again. Whereas the core premise for book readers in the fourth book, right? You don't have to, I mean, obviously the pages tell us it's Lord Voldemort in the chair, but even if they never gave names, you'd know. Yeah. Right. And so this movie just, yeah, they make every, they make every wrong choice in my opinion that just cheapens and weakens the brilliance of what was a phenomenal book. Yeah. Well, and this book also like, turned what you had read in one through three around because it also started not with Harry. Every other book you've started with Harry at Privet Drive pretty much. And this one you're in a whole different place. But this one does not have whereas the translations of book to movie aren't always the best. They at least, in a way, have the tone and the feel of it. And this one doesn't feel like the book, even with the changes in that it's, yes, it's the same story, but there's just something about it that doesn't connect the movie and the book as well as some of the other movies. Who, in your opinion, won this movie? I am going to have to go with Harry because through this movie, I specifically noticed that it was, it really is Harry centric. And I didn't really connect with many other characters throughout this one. Even the characters I love, it just felt, I felt disconnected from the characters that I always love seeing. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with that. I think, I think Ray Fiennes, in my opinion, has to be the winner because if you're just to describe Voldemort and his appearance, it is a large, 
essentially portrayed as like skin and bone anorexic type creature that emerges from a cauldron has no nose and slits for eyes and engages in a duel to the death with a 14 year old boy in his opening scene, right? His first moments of the series. It's very easy. I think to screw that up. Like, I think it's very easy for someone else to portray Voldemort and just come across as over the top or buffoonish or what have, you know, like, I think it's very easy to mess that up. Yeah. And he comes into this series and just lights the room on fire. And so I think that was phenomenal. I think if I'm giving out consolation prizes, you know, I think, again, Rupert Grint just continues to do solid work. He, yeah, he just does very solid work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are probably my two. What about the best scene for you? Uh, instead of best, I'm going with favorite. Sure. I love the Fred and George goblet scene where they grow beards. I just love their interactions with Hermione when they go in. It just felt so true to character and it, it's it just makes me laugh. The book the book chapter of that makes me laugh and the movie of that. I just enjoy their interactions. Yeah, they they also the Phelps twins combined have a very strong movie. Yeah, they did they came out very strong and you really were seeing their personalities in this one. Yeah, I agree with that. But um, this is also almost like where they become they're no they're still like the older brothers, but you can see their growing relationship with Harry. I agree. You know, it's funny thinking about this more. This movie, if you think about the actual scenes, the character performances, really isn't bad. No. For me, the movie just really fails for everything we've already discussed. Gambin and the overall conceit of the plot relative to what canonically the plot should be. Because, you know, the twins are great. I think Robbie Coulter great. They're great moments. Like, if I'm thinking about, if I'm if I'm listing kind of good characters and then bad performances, right? On the good side, you've got the Phelps twins, Radcliffe, Grint, Watson, Robbie Coltrane, Maggie Smith, Alan Rickman, Ray Fiennes. Like, that's that's the majority of, like, the, the main primary cast. main cast yeah. there. They all put in great work. You know, I, I even think like the secondary tertiary characters we get like thought Seamus, you know, Devin Murray for what little work he had was mm-hmm. good. Right. I thought, you know, Neville, Neville, I thought, right. Yeah, no, there was all strong work. I think the disconnect is the script and how it was put together yeah. versus the actual acting abilities. Yeah. Cause like when I think about the past movies we've, we've recorded on, why, why I had to pick my best or favorite scene there weren't really that many options for him. It was like, oh yeah, that one clearly. Mm-hmm. I could I could tell you the McGonagall dancing scene with the the, the gramophone thing. Like that that yeah. could have been my favorite. The actual Yule Ball could have been my favorite. I really enjoy. Um, I like the down by the lake with the I'm yeah, not the, an owl. Yeah, like that's phenomenal. I I really do like in a bizarre morbid kind of way the dead cedric band playing my boy like that's good the weasley twins in the quidditch tent feed off the table right like 
tons of great stuff. I think my favorite, I think my favorite has to be the learning how to dance scene. Or even like Ron, when he's like, you know how I like the way they walk, right? Like, yeah. like I, I, there's so many options, which is bizarre that I hate this movie so much. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with learning how to dance. And then, of course, for me, the most surprising thing is the fact that I was kind of wowed by how many characters I thought did a great job and how many scenes I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Again, relative to my overall dissatisfaction with the movie. What about you? I am sad about David Tennant in this movie because I love David Tennant. There are just some weird choices made. I mean, he also, you don't see him. You see him very, very little. I was surprised at how much I didn't remember how this movie flowed. It just frustrated me that like we were halfway in and we still hadn't gotten to task one. And it just felt like the way it was constructed together and the things they chose to keep and add and get rid of were just, and they, there was just interesting choices made throughout the whole thing. What are you thinking about heading into the next movie? I usually think I'm really going to enjoy this movie. You know, as I think we talked about here somewhat recently, I rewatched all the movies in quick succession somewhat recently within the past probably three four months i enjoyed order a lot more than i thought i was going to or that i remembered enjoying it look i think we're over the hump now i think we were on a collision course with this stupid movie and look we scheduled and then put off recording this episode at least six or seven times no exaggeration um but we're past that now and look i'm not saying i necessarily love five, six, seven, and eight. Certainly I love some of them and I love pieces of all of them, but I definitely don't dislike any of them. I'm all in for, for order. It's going to be a while for us to record it just because I am seemingly traveling every weekend between now and 2025, but I'm looking forward to five. It's, it's the strongest Gambit performance of the series. Yes. And, and I'm already going to give y'all a pre kind of a little preview of why I feel that way. In Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore is supposed to be cold and distant and somewhat angry. And Michael Gambit's Dumbledore, if nothing else, is cold and distant and sometimes a little angry. So if he's perfect for any of the movies, it's it's order. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to Luna entering the picture. I do struggle with movie five because I don't think it's a very good, I haven't watched it in a while, but what I remember is I really did not like the translation of book to movie. Cause I do know I enjoyed that book, but I did not like certain choices, which I won't go into cause I'm sure we'll talk about them after watching it. Um, but I do like we're at the point where the trio has definitely grown. Like they've grown into themselves. We're hitting the point where they're not adults, but they're mature, full thinkers. And they're actually like now at the point where they're starting to try to get to the end game. But So the trio has grown, you, yeah. you say. The trio hasn't shrunk. You know what I mean. So what you would so what you're saying then is not that 
they'll fall in love. And here's the bottom line. Our trio's down to two. Oh, the sweet caress of twilight is magic everywhere. And with all this romantic atmosphere, disasters in the air. Can you feel the love tonight? Nope. Okay. Well, that's all I got for this episode <laughs> of Creating Magic. Are we doing creative shout outs? Yes or no? We haven't done them in these. The only times we've done them is if they're worked in, but you feel free to have a shout out. I got one. I think you actually know who I'm going to shout out because I know that you heard about this um, elsewhere too. One of our good friends of the pod, Carrie L, who you may know as the Hermione cosplayer, She's doing great things on social media. I think she's above 50,000 followers on Instagram, which is just like a wet dream for me. And she had a TikTok that got like 5 million views, which look, I don't TikTok. I watch TikToks. So I personally don't have aspirations of having a video that gets 5 million views, but I understand how cool that is and how much of a momentous thing that is. So doing great there. She decided to uh, 21 plus pot of kid reads go away. Turn off the episode. Good talking to you. Good night, bud. Chloe, turn off the episode. Go, go. Good night. Bye bye. She decided to start an OnlyFans recently and is planning on doing a bunch of fandom inspired content. I've actually talked with her about it once or twice, just over DM. She sounds really excited for it. Um, is going to do a bunch of themed content. So you can go to. I, I'm, I'm assuming it's on her social media somewhere. If you go to Carrie L, um, Carrie X. That's also her name on OnlyFans. Um, Carrie LX. So go check it out. Worth worth uh, supporting a friend of the pod and a friend of the community. So can you feel the love tonight? And with that, we will end our episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.